Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The week was dominated by revelations of the bilateral lovey-dovey relationship between the MAGA right and Fox News Corp. In the months after the election, Fox scratched the back of Trump and his supporters by repeatedly serving up Trump's bogus big lie allegations as fact, while knowing they were fiction. The chickens are now coming home to roost in a $1.6 billion defamation trial that already has been a public relations nightmare for Fox and threatens to be a financial one as well. The case has produced a series of lurid revelations exposing Fox as a faux news organization driven by money, ratings, and service to the political right. And in recent days, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, scratched the back of Fox celebrity Tucker Carlson by granting him exclusive access to more than 40,000 hours of security footage from January 6th. The naked favoritism by a government official to a single press outlet is bad enough in the abstract, but given Carlson's well-known agenda of glorifying the rioters and trashing the work of the January 6th committee, it is all the more worrisome. The move was likely the latest special delivery to Marjorie Taylor Greene and the uber-crazy contingent in Congress from a series of debasing promises McCarthy made to finally secure his speakership on the 15th ballot. As the race for the Republican nomination for president begins to heat up, it remains far from clear that the possible hits to Fox's reputation and bottom line will fundamentally change their derelict conduct. And that in turn only augments the country's challenge of escaping the authoritarian grip that Trump imposed and that candidates like Ron DeSantis seem poised to perpetuate. To separate mistakes from defamation, news from propaganda, and politics from real life, we welcome a terrific group of Talking Feds favorites. And they are... John Alter, I always have to take a deep breath for all his titles, an award-winning author, filmmaker, columnist, and MSNBC political analyst. He has authored five political and historical books, most notably his definitive biography of former president Jimmy Carter, which now would be the time to pick up and reread and appreciate the former president as Jonathan sculpts him. And in 2021, he launched a newsletter, Old Goats, Ruminating with Friends. John, thanks for coming as always. Thanks. Juliet Kayyem, a national security analyst at CNN and the senior Belfer lecturer in international security at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where she's also faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects. She served as President Obama's assistant secretary for intergovernmental affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. She's the author of the books, Security Mom and The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Juliet, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. And Senator Al Franken, the host of the Al Franken podcast. He served, of course, as a United States Senator from Minnesota from 2009 to 2018. And also, of course, politics was his second career after his stratospheric rise to fame as a writer and comedian. And last year, Senator Franken made his return to comedy with 
the only former U.S. senator currently on tour, tour, which I've seen and is excellent. Is it still going strong, Senator? I did a show uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I'm not sure. I've been doing it for about a year and a half, done like 40 cities, and I'm taking a, a break right now. Okay, let's dive in, beginning with the $1.6 billion with a B defamation lawsuit against Fox. So filings by Dominion, the plaintiff that have come out over the last week and a half, seem to expose Fox as a corrupt faux news organization that repeatedly advanced Trump's big lie while knowing it was false and did it for ratings, that is money, and also was in other ways in bed with the Trump campaign in ways totally incompatible with its ostensible First Amendment function. So defamation claims are notoriously difficult under the governing standard, New York Times v. Sullivan, because you have to prove the media knew or was recklessly indifferent about the falsity of the statements. But you very rarely see documentation of knowing lies like this. It looks like it's going to trial. Does Fox have a prayer? No, I don't think so. It's pretty clear that they knew they were lying and they kept doing it. That seems to hit the standard, doesn't it? I'm not a lawyer, but... Uh, yeah, well, I, you could I, be a juror. Yeah, I could be a juror. Probably not. I bet you Fox would throw me out. <laughs> You'd be on, Al. Yeah. I wrote a book called Lies and Lying Liars Who Tell Them, A Fair and Balanced Look at the Right, in uh, 2003, in which I pointed out that Fox lies all the time and knew it. And nothing about this surprised me in terms of them putting it out in texts to each other. We should stick with you for a second because that's right. You, I mean, you chronicled this. So do you think this is just par for the course or is this a cut above even for the fair and balanced lying liars at Fox? It's a cut above because it was Trump putting out a big lie, which is the biggest lie you can kind of tell, I guess, other than maybe going to war for the wrong reason which we've had a couple of those too. But this was not just him lying, but clearly lying. <laughs> and it being so obvious that he's lying and having people lying on his behalf who are so clearly lying. And everyone at Fox looking at it and going like, they're lying, but let's not say that. Let's continue to push the lie because otherwise our stock price will go down. I don't know how much clear cut you can get. Murdoch has this remarkable deposition where he basically says, no, Fox News, I was okay. But yeah, oh, I guess, yeah, Hannity, uh, yeah, Bartolomo, yeah, I guess there were four or five. They all knew. What's the idea there of throwing your reporters under the bus? It's survival, but I actually don't agree with Al that it's a, a total slam dunk. The defendant in any of these libel defamation cases always has the advantage because of the Sullivan versus New York Times decision requiring that the plaintiff prove what's called actual malice, that it was wrong and they knew it was wrong. So that's what will be argued. And even though I think Dominion is favored in this case, I covered enough of these cases when I was covering media for Newsweek for you know, more than a decade. And they're really hard to win for the plaintiffs because establishing that people knew it was a lie 
it looks like that's been established, but you have a situation here where Tucker Carlson, for instance, sometimes he indicated that he thought it might be a little fishy in some of his questions to uh, guests that were not in the New York Times. You know, he wasn't entirely sure that his lying guests were uh, onto something. He was unsure, which is can be a pretty good defense. And then Maria Bartiromo and some of the, uh, the dumber ones over there, they actually seemed like they believed the lie, which is an absolute defense. If they didn't know it was a lie, they get off. And what Murdoch did that was obviously on the advice of counsel and very skillful was he said, nothing to see here at the corporate end. You can't win a judgment against Fox as a whole because I'm throwing my people under the bus and they can fend for themselves. And I think some of them might be able to. So I'd give it, I don't know what it is, Fox a 10% chance of winning, 25%. But what really worries me is that if Fox does win, then they'll use all of their propagandistic power to say, see, we did nothing wrong. There really was doubt about whether this was true and we're fine and, you know, nothing succeeds like success. So that that worries me. I'm worried they'll do that if they lose. I mean, even now, as this is pending, they're telling Howard Kurtz he can't cover the suit. That's not what news organizations do. But well, let me ask that. Does Fox see this or do you see this as an existential threat to them or, you know, just a big check? So Dominion sold for, I think it was $30 million a few years before. So you add, you know, major punitive damages on top of that, that doesn't come close to bankrupting Fox. I wish I could say it would. Can I just say something about the company? Because I know I know it's on the other end, which is Dominion, which you know is about a decade old. It was at the forefront of trying to make voting more creative in a way. In other words, give more alternatives and safer and more secure. They've got all sorts of different products that came to be pretty well respected in the field of sort of election security. How do you protect elections? How do you protect the vote itself? What's the democracy suite, so to speak, of things that would help? And going after them, they were a small company, but they were really one of just a very few that were sort of 21st century voting. And so they'll never, uh, this is me, pontificating, you know, it, it will be very hard for them without a name change to get sort of past what they are. They had to do this. And I actually am really psyched that they did do it and that they are fighting Fox like they should because they were completely maligned through this process with no evidence that the product itself and what they were doing in these precincts was in any way nefarious. It was quite the opposite. But I don't, I don't know what the numbers will look like against Fox, even if they win what would be the penalty against Fox that would actually hurt that would matter to anyone except for those of us sort of following it. Didn't Tucker, I mean, when he was saying, I have doubts and stuff like that, wasn't that after he knew they were lying? I mean, it was really clear what happened here. And when he brought in Mike Lindell. It was incredibly clear. Yeah. So what you're saying is, oh, because he said, you know, I have some doubts. Yeah. That that's credible? No, it's not credible. He didn't have doubts. He was pretending to have doubts so he could say, I had doubts. Right. 
But John said 10%, 25%. I mean, another way of saying it is these are hard cases to win. Now, Fox says, oh, they're just choosing little isolated instances, although that shouldn't matter because an isolated instance that's defamatory is a lie. But look, everyone agrees that, okay, it's not an existential threat. So I'm just wondering, Schumer and others are now piling on, demanding an apology. Assuming the case doesn't do it, they want to go for the jugular, but is there any real play in the political system to somehow put them in line where a media organization is supposed to be? I don't know. All I know is like the pretense that that Fox is anything but a campaign wing of the MAGA and Republican Party is ridiculous. I don't know why Democrats go on air with it. I don't get that argument anymore. I don't get why they have a seat in the White House. I personally stopped doing it for that reason. I don't get any of it. I mean, at this stage, whether it's popular or not, why Democrats need to figure out a way in which, you know, Mayor Pete goes back on again and really shoves it to them. Like, what the, who gives? Like, honestly, (laughs) let them be in their alternative universe. I think that the statement made simultaneously that Murdoch made about him being in collusion with Jared Kushner about providing Biden's ads early, I don't know how big of a deal that is, but it just basically shows, this is an arm of the RNC, why we're treating it as, they get to host debates and we should go on them and all this. It's just ridiculous at this stage. It's more than an arm of the RNC. I, I think Steve Schmidt, you know, who ran McCain's yeah. campaign years ago, got it right. It's a cancer on America, a cancer yeah. on democracy. As Al said earlier, you know, this wasn't just another story that they lied about. This was something that did serious harm to our country. I mean, serious harm to our democracy. And there are people out there who for the rest of their lives, they'll think that the Democrats stole the election from Donald Trump. And they will think it because at the moment when they were forming their opinions about it, Fox told them it was true. Now, the one other thing possibly positive that could come out of it is having been so badly burned, this lawsuit has not been fun for them. They are not going to carry water for Trump in this upcoming campaign. Yeah. And they've already become kind of team DeSantis. You know, they do whatever they can to help DeSantis. And that'll have its own non-journalistic dimensions, but at least it won't be on behalf of Trump. How long will that last? I'm always skeptical when people count Trump down and out. Let's say he's not down and out and he's able to go forward. Fox does seem to have crossed the Rubicon on him. If Trump gets the nomination, what does that mean for Fox? They'll do what they did last time. Yeah. I think I may have, in some ways, not thought this through far enough, because my first reaction is that they won't peddle the big lie anymore. That is over. They're not going to be peddling the big lie. But actually, the big lie is not working for Trump politically anymore. So they will inadvertently be getting him back on message, talking about other things, China or whatever other bullshit comes out of his mouth. You know, he said the other day that he wanted to end all trade with China. It's a trillion dollar bilateral relationship. You know, it would send us into a deep, deep depression if we ended trade with China. But he says these things and nobody pays any attention. Are they still a threat? 
if Trump gets the nomination to, you know, to just go back to their old ways or have they sort of parted company irrevocably? No way. I don't know what world <laughs> you people are living in. It was a question. It was a question. You yeah. know, look, okay. So the big lie isn't working. Why? Because for a variety of reasons, the violence is unleashed as a radicalization initiative. That violence is a legitimate extension of politics has now been unleashed and we're getting it back in the bottle, but it's not completely there. And if you watch Fox long enough, the winking and the nodding that if they get it, they being blacks, immigrants, women, whatever, then you don't, which for some small percentage of their viewers means I better fight for it. So that's already unleashed. If Trump gets a nomination, which from my, I know how to count. If the vote's divided by five, his MAGA base, the radicalized MAGA base is going to get a certain percentage. I don't know how you break that up. Fox goes back to, you know, maybe they don't call it the big lie, but they put the act of democracy in question. And that's what their success has been. That's been Trump's, his biggest success besides the court's has been legitimizing violence as an extension of politics. It's just period. I mean, the, the winks and the nods that this party does to everything from anti-Semitism to racism is unbelievable. The Republican National Committee called the January 6th insurrection legitimate political discourse. Right. Yeah. All right. So inoperable metastatic cancer, that's the opinion all around, yeah? And I completely agree that if Trump is the nominee, that they will go back to supporting Trump yeah. without mentioning the big lie, which will be better for Trump because he can talk about other issues. But right. right where I disagree is there's a bit of conventional wisdom about Republican Party primaries that is inconsistent with the historical record in both parties. So the idea that five other candidates will split the anti-Trump vote, that's only true in Iowa and maybe New Hampshire. What happens is very quickly in both parties, the also rands run out of money and they drop out. So the odds of there being four or five candidates when they get to the delegate-rich states are quite small. And that yeah. is rarely pointed out. So DeSantis has quite a good chance of getting a one-on-one -on -one with Trump. Whether he wins or not is a different matter, but they won't split the vote ultimately. Why don't we stick with this? I wanted to talk about it later, but we're just a year from Super Tuesday, Trump managed, as I think as every Republican president who won since at least Reagan, to unite the elites of the party, whoever they may be with the rank and file or, uh, or Reagan uh, Democrats and the like. It does seem like there's a distinct split though now, right? That the elites are wanting DeSantis, but the big 30, 32%, not enough to win, but enough to control the dynamic of the Republicans are sticking with Trump. So what is DeSantis' strategy for trying to siphon off those voters? His strategy is to present himself as a forceful, dynamic Grown up. candidate. I mean, right now, he's Scott Walker a little bit. We don't know what is going to be like when he is actually running for president and actually in other states and actually speaking and whether he's a locks or whether he does it for those voters. It's really about his performance. John, you tweeted that the Dominion thing was actually a gift to DeSantis. What did you mean by that? Because I, I think it 
gives Republicans a permission slip in the way Trump gave them a permission slip to be bigoted and all kinds of other things to say, you know, in this particular struggle, we're with Fox and Trump is now attacking Fox, right? And I just think DeSantis could be Scott Walker. He could face plant, but he actually has both things that Republicans need in a nominee. Look, they don't believe in anything anymore. This party, they didn't even have a platform in 2020. They only believe in two things, owning the libs, hating on Al and the rest of us, and winning, winning back power. So DeSantis is doing a very effective job within that party of owning the libs. He gets up every day and figures out how to work anti-woke messages into his daily routine. And in terms of getting back power, he does much better against Democrats than Trump does. And once the Republican Party as a whole absorbs that DeSantis is a better way to get power back, you know, he's got at least a decent shot. A lot of Democrats say, well, he's so unattractive. He's so ugly. So they're talking about candidates in their party. Republicans like them that way, not just Trump, but (laughs) Ted Cruz finished second to Trump. He's the most loathsome creature around. And yes, DeSantis has these Nixonian qualities that are unappealing to to liberals, but um, they're not unappealing to conservatives. I think that explains why money folks and others will coalesce behind him. But man, he's got a lot of chipping away to do. Trump has this absolutely rock solid base that he identified a long time ago. If you shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, they'd still be for him. Right. He's come close. But you know what? You know what? If he had done that, he would have been indicted. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. Maybe. That's my prediction. Now, I if you know. shoot someone randomly on Fifth Avenue, it's assault with a deadly weapon. If it was president when he did it, remember, presidents can't, can't be yeah. indicted. But I think the reality is that he has a lock on somewhere between 30 and 35 percent of the Republican Party. So his disapproval ratings, if you're looking to a general election, are 57 to 60 percent. Those are astronomically high. So Mm -hmm. his chances of convincing millions and millions of people who right now disapprove of him that, oh, he's not so bad, are not good. I don't think he has a very good chance in the general. But the problem, beyond the fact that DeSantis could beat Biden, even if Trump couldn't, is that within the Republican Party, what people, I think, don't get is that if he wins, then the whole Republican Party, with very few exceptions, will be behind him the way they were the last time, right? It's the independents that he's going to have a hard time getting back. And that's why He seems to be falling short in a general election, but the Republicans will get behind him. But there's only 30 percent of Republicans who want him. If you look at Frank Luntz's focus groups over and over again, these are focus groups of people who voted for Donald Trump twice and they would vote for him happily again if he was the Republican nominee. But about 10 out of 12 people in those focus groups want DeSantis. They don't like Trump's baggage, and they want power more than they want Trump. That's where most of the Republican Party is right now. And let me follow up on Al's uh, question. You know, what if Trump, as early as next week, is indicted? 
Do his voters in Fox News care now? Or, you know, it's just another, uh, you know, little feather on top of the pile? It's a really good question. I I have misunderestimated him, as <laughs> George W. would say, a number of times. And you just think, well, that would be it, wouldn't it? Being indicted. And no, maybe <laughs> it would just say, yeah, of course they indicted him. I'm behind him at 10,000% now. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't, there's a lot in front of us and it's very hard to predict at this point. I think one of the things though that's got to be scary if you're Trump and you're thinking I can advance through sheer force of personality, it's not just DeSantis, it is, it is hard for him to deliver the kind of outrage and organization that he did when he was president, let alone even in the couple months after January 6th. Trump's strength is that, you know, th these people are horrible and vicious and make a lot of noise and stuff. You know, it's hard for him to fill a room now. You know, you look at the January 6th anniversary rallies he tried to have, maybe there's a dozen people there. You know, at CPAC, maybe he sees his people, but it's very hard for him to translate that radical enthusiasm that he had each day that we pass by. And so from the perspective of the indictment, does that generate a round of outrage and unrest? Sure. But it's, it's not, you're not seeing it in the streets. It's not going to get a significant group to say this is a, a political witch hunt. So he's got to be nervous about that in some ways. And this campaign overall just strikes me as oddly kind of low energy. You almost wonder, is, does he have some other reason for doing it than a bona fide campaign? It's time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person from another field to explain an important legal concept in the news. And the topic today is Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11. That may sound pretty particular and arcane. In fact, it's one of the chief reasons that when Trump lawyers like Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell actually go to court, they need to stop lying and stop advancing the baseless claims that they tout in public. Rule 11 gives a court power to impose sanctions for that dishonest conduct, which can cost a lawyer money and potentially her license. To explain Rule 11 further, I'm really happy to welcome Dan Wilson. A musician, singer, songwriter, and producer, Wilson is a two-time Grammy winner, winning Album of the Year for Adele's 21 in 2012 and Song of the Year for The Chicks' Not Ready to Make Nice in 2007. Dan also was nominated for Best Rock Song for his band Semisonic's Closing Time. Throughout his career, Dan has written with iconic artists across genres, including Carole King, Chris Stapleton, Alec Benjamin, and many more. So I give you Dan Wilson on Rule 11. The last several years have been a crash course for non-lawyers into the various kinds of misconduct that lawyers are capable of. We have seen highly public instances of shoddy lawyering, dishonest lawyering, and even criminal lawyering. By and large, however, Lawyers hew to standards of professional conduct that are second nature to every practitioner. That is because of systems of professional oversight that can impose sharp sanctions, including potential disbarment on wayward lawyers. 
A core element of oversight in the federal system is Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11. It says that whenever a lawyer presents any written paper to the court, from formal brief to minor motion, whether by filing the paper or even just later advocating for it, the lawyer certifies that, to the best of her knowledge, the paper is presented for a proper purpose and not to harass, cause delay, or increase the cost of litigation, the legal contentions are grounded in the existing law or at least in a reasonable argument for modifying the existing law, and the factual contentions have evidentiary support. Rule 11 is important because it contains the possibility for the court to impose sanctions for violations. However, before a party can seek sanctions under Rule 11, she must first give her opponent 21 days to correct the challenged filing. The court can also initiate a sanctions inquiry on its own motion. However, Rule 11 is not meant to redress aggressive, if wrong, lawyering and does not alter the attorney's duty of vigorous representation. Consequently, sanctions are usually awarded only for especially clear cases of dishonest or vexatious pleadings. If the court determines that there has been a violation of Rule 11, it has broad discretion to set sanctions, which are set to deter future violations of the rule by the offender or other lawyers. Sanctions can be non-monetary, but often take the form of an order to pay the attorney's fees incurred by the other side in dealing with the improper claims. Importantly, Rule 11 sanctions are often imposed against both the client on whose behalf the lawyers worked, as well as the lawyers that filed the improper papers. In November, the judge presiding over Mr. Trump's lawsuit against the Hillary Clinton campaign and numerous other defendants imposed sanctions against Mr. Trump and his lawyers under Rule 11 for including false information in their complaint and for filing it for an improper purpose. The judge ordered the plaintiffs to pay a total of $66,000 in sanctions. In January, the same judge ordered Mr. Trump and his lawyers to pay nearly $1 million to 18 other defendants in the same case. This time the court did not rely on Rule 11, but on its own power to punish litigants. The court relied on this power because it felt that Rule 11 sanctions were not up to the task as they were limited to improper filings, and the court felt that the entire lawsuit was frivolous and brought in bad faith. In addition, the court concluded that the lawsuit was part of a strategic abuse of judicial process. As this order shows, Rule 11 works in concert with other laws, including a court's inherent power, to sanction attorneys for improper conduct. For Talking Feds, I'm Dan Wilson. Thanks very much to Dan Wilson for explaining Rule 11. In September, Dan released his first collection of new solo material since 2017. It's titled Dancing on the Moon, and you can find it wherever you listen to music. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unbottle the truth about wine. Is there really a right or a wrong way to enjoy it? Wine drinkers near and far have lived by a certain set of written yet unofficial rules to follow, particularly when it comes to pairing wine and food. You've heard a couple of them before. White wine pairs with seafood, red wine pairs with big old juicy steaks. And while we like to think of these more as guidelines than rules, some suggestions actually do serve a higher purpose to help your wine get the most from your dish and vice versa. One pairing that's not quite as obvious involves tannins. Tannins are the dryness that you taste and feel in wine. 
They come from grape seeds, skin, or oak barrels. Traditionally, high tannin wines and spicy foods don't pair well together. The dry components of the wine become more pronounced with spice, which makes the food itself taste even hotter than it actually is. From drinking red wine with fish to white wine with beef, we say you do you. But there is one no-no that we wholeheartedly live by. Always, yes, always hold your glass by the stem and not the bulb. And there are a few reasons why. Putting your warm hands on the bulb transfers unnecessary heat to the wine. As wine warms up, it will become off balance and you will taste the alcohol more and more. Not to mention, you can easily avoid smudges to your beautiful glassware. To truly enjoy wine, you can never go wrong pairing the wonderful selection and helpful guides at Total Wine & More. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, enough about Trump and Fox. Let's talk about the Republican Party and Fox. So we had the lovey-dovey relationship between Fox and the MAGA right from the other side, which is House Speaker Kevin McCarthy scratching Tucker Carlson's back by giving exclusive access to all of the Capitol security footage, 41,000 hours, to use on his Fox show. Okay, McCarthy tried to sort of joke it off. You know, the press is jealous and everybody on the press works off exclusives on certain things. So let's start here. Where does this fall on the outrageous scale, would you say? Very high. Very high, (laughs) yeah, because? It allows Tucker Carlson, with all this footage, to try to create an alternative story and... I don't know exactly how he does it, but it's a lot of footage. It had been characterized as the ordinary tourist visit. So there may be a lot of people lining up to see uh, particular paintings and statues, and they won't show the smearing human feces on them. They'll just show the lining up for them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what they're going to do. It's also there are some security aspects of this that are Frightening. I imagine the first person that Tucker may have given the footage to is Putin. It's terrifying. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was just an arrest in Michigan where a hugely anti-Semitic guy was um, plotting to kill Jewish state office holders. And somehow, I don't think that in Tucker Carlson's new narrative, you're going to see the guy in the Capitol with the Camp Auschwitz T-shirt. Yeah. You're not going to see the guy waving the Confederate flag in the Capitol. You're not going to see the people smashing in the windows. And propaganda can be really powerful when people want to believe it. Tucker, from a very early point, and he's very smart. I've known him for 25 years. He's evil, but he's smart. From the very beginning, was talking about undercover agents being in the crowd, right? To go after what is uh, hidden, which is always a trope you know, of conspiracy theories, you're not getting the full story. So I think you can expect him to do that. And there was actually a guy, he turned out to be totally innocent of being an undercover agent, but because he was a little uncool and a little enthusiastic in places when he shouldn't have been, and he wasn't with the cool insurrectionists. He became a huge meme conservative internet 
millions and millions of people believed that this guy was a secret agent of the government when he wasn't. And you're going to see a lot of that when Tucker is ready for his uh, propaganda exercise. Yeah. It's like in the realm of why are we even having this discussion? It's not, I mean, McCarthy is just full of crap when he says other journalists are jealous. It's, we have heard nothing that he's going to share it with other journalists. There's no journalistic need for that kind of information any more than there is for security at the Supreme Court to be handed over to Tucker Carlson, let alone at the White House. There's clearly going to have to be a reevaluation by the Capitol Police about where cameras are and what devices they have that would stop, say, crowds or others from getting into certain chambers. And it's just a lot of unnecessary work for what? For exactly what you said, which is to basically cut it into the right pieces so that it looks like it's an inside job where we'll have the picture of the, you know, the one African-American who showed up at January 6th to say that this was, you know, BLM sponsored. And when I read it, I, I sort of thought I like misread it. I was like, what, what interest is there in this except for McCarthy wanting to make sure that he could be booked? I've never, I, I mean, they all just want to get on Tucker's show. Or maybe maybe it was one of the promises he made. Yeah. So you're saying, Juliet, as a security expert, this wouldn't be remedied by giving it to everyone. This should never have, have gone to anyone in the press. Now, I mean, the January 6th committee ran the videos by the Capitol Police, would probably right. presumably sliced and diced it so that to make sure that the various cameras and, and placement wasn't known. I mean, we've known that they've gone through a post-January 6th protocol, so some of this may be legacy, but you still don't want it. And also, let's just not forget, there's a couple hundred more law um, criminal cases against these guys. It's, it's, they're fantastic in the sense that these are very strong cases. And, you know, you just don't let evidence out like that. So willy nilly, it's not a leak. It's a, literally you're handing your security protocols to Tucker Carlson. And, and, and we should be pretty nervous about it any more than if we heard that a Secret Service agent was handing the security planning for the Oval Office over to Tucker Carlson. You, you just would be like, well, I don't even get that. It makes no sense to me. And that's, that should be our reaction. It was just, it was a promise to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. I mean, yeah. She's, she basically has a hammer over Kevin McCarthy's head. That in and of itself is the scariest thing we yeah. just talked about right. today. If you think about it, that that element of the party has that control over the speaker because he allowed himself to do it. And all of this is about the way he became speaker and how owing he is to them. And that's really, 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 really dangerous and scary. You know, his goal is not simply to rehabilitate as political prisoners all the defendants. He wants to completely disintegrate all the work of the January 6th committee itself to sort of rewrite that history. But Barry Loudermilk is now saying, we're going to give some of this evidence in our discretion to criminal defendants. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine the bedlam that that will provide? You've got to think the DOJ can go to court for that. But, you know, courts are so like hands off on disputes between the political branches. But if they can do that, that's literally trying to undermine prosecutions of yeah. the riders. Against the people that tried to kill them. I mean, it's the most insane thing. Julian, I thought you made a great analogy. Imagine if every so often some guy tries to scale the fence of the White House, right? And the police pull him down and he's prosecuted. Imagine if 
after he scales the fence of the White House and he's prosecuted, somebody decides that he should have access to all of the security footage at the White House. It's insane. And the thing that I have trouble understanding is why there's anybody left who say listening to this show who doesn't get that, right? But when you see, say, what the Russians are doing very successfully with um, these Ukrainian orphans, and they're cutting all these videos where the orphans now living in Russia talking about how great things are, and it's kind of working for them domestically. And you're reminded that propaganda works. Yeah. That's why the Tucker Carlson thing is, is so dangerous, because I might have been wrong earlier when I said it was hard to know where Trump would go to regain support that he's lost. You know, if they have skillful enough filmmakers, maybe they'll figure it out. That was a bit of a 180, Jonathan, <laughs> but you said that he was gone. It was a bit of a 180. I still would not bet on him actually returning to the Oval Office because, you know, I, I think at a certain point, even Republicans will go to his rallies carrying old luggage, baggage. It has sunk in to a majority of Republican voters, if you look at the mm -hmm. polls, that he has more baggage than they would like. That's a little clever for them, I think. But I, look, what about Fox? I mean, <laughs> okay, all about money, all about ratings, but are they prepared to go forward and just be all in for the insurrection or all, you know, continuing to be all in for the big lies? There's no sort of business acumen that says, you know, let's at least change the subject? Depends if they win or lose. If they lose the case, they can't go back to all of that. Yeah. Viet Din, their lawyer, or whoever replaces him, will tell them, look, you just lost a billion dollar judgment. You can't double down on the big lie and talk about how all these people were, were right to be doing this because the election had been stolen. That's a very hard thing for Fox to do. But if they win, if they get off, then they could double down. One is I'd also look to the foreign money. I mean, I, I think that's going to be telling as well. The Trump family is being propped up by the Saudis now. And if that money starts to be at risk, it's going to be telling. In other words, if you start to see this, uh, some overture by the Saudis towards DeSantis, I know it's disgusting. We're an American democracy, but the Trump family is keenly aware of who, who feeds them at this stage. And I think that's going to be relevant to whether the apparatus moves to DeSantis and, or not. And I mean, I just want to say one thing, this Scott Dilbert thing, this guy who wrote the comic strip, the crazy racist rant and gets dropped by everyone. I think it was a reminder that there's still a space of legitimate money where you cannot lose it. In other words, Scott, he's in this hole of believing that everyone around him believes what he is, but he forgot that his money was coming outside of that, right? And so this is why his whole world erupts as compared to the pillow guy who, you know, however he gets his money. So, I mean, I hate to say it, but follow the money. So I think the Dilbert guy, what happened to him is also a maybe a cautionary tale that there's limits to this still, one hopes. All right, let's try to sort of go a little broader. So in this symbiotic relationship between the Republican Party and Fox. Who is in charge? Who's running the show? 
who is more dangerous in the long term. Senator Franken talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene. But the broader question here for the whole country is, will autocracy ebb? And, you know, that's only partly about will Trump be thrown out from the party fold. But who is really the engine here and who's the deputy, if you know what I mean? Fox is the engine. And that poses a problem for Trump, who's now lashing out at Fox because these other far right wing networks are just not nearly as big. What Fox decides to promote, the whole party promotes. It's like if Pravda was running the Communist Party. Except actually, you know, in the 80s, I went to the Soviet Union and I interviewed a bunch of editors of major publications, including Pravda. And that was as Glasnost was getting going, but Pravda wasn't as as close to the Soviet leadership as Fox is to Republican Party leadership. It's all up in the air. It's all up in the air. I can't predict a damn thing. I point to who captures people's imagination or is able to, and DeSantis might be able to do that. And if he does, then we may have a President DeSantis. But if he can't, which is just as likely, I would think, we may be in for a rematch. And Fox is Fox either way. Yep. To me, you know, and I agree with Al, it's impossible to predict. We're always wrong. But my money is on a DeSantis-Biden race. And if you think that Fox was supportive of Trump, it'll be nothing compared to how supportive they are of DeSantis. Let's say Biden wins, is Fox changed? You see nothing in the foreseeable future to cabin Fox's conduct at all. In terms of affecting their behavior, if they lose the case, it will be a serious disincentive to them peddling obvious lies. They will peddle more gray area lies, but they'll check themselves on the really obvious lies because they don't want it to happen all over again. So that's why this case is so important. If you ask me if you could vaporize one of the two things, I would vaporize today's Republican Party. First of all, I don't like vaporizing any kind of I'm not going to call them a news organization, but these are human beings, <laughs> Jonathan. <laughs> they have families. I agree with the never Trumpers that today's Republican Party has to be burnt to the ground. They have to start over. They are a poisonous, corrupt, unpatriotic political party. And we need realignment where Liz Cheney becomes the head of a new true conservative party that I might not agree with a lot of her positions, but it's a legitimate political party. This is a bunch of political thugs and cowards who let crazy town run their party. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene has immense power right now. This is a woman who talks about Jewish space lasers. Yeah. And that's just scratching the surface of what she believes. She's a QAnon person. There are people in Congress in that party who believe in Pizzagate, know that Democrats are satanic worshipers. We've had crazy people in Congress forever. I could give you many examples from American history of people who were insane who were in Congress, but they weren't running their parties. They weren't influential in the White House. That's what's changed in the last period. And so the party does have to be burnt to the ground. We need political realignment. 
and then maybe we can get our country back with a strong two-party system again. Well, from your lips. All right, and there's an end. We've had a couple choices here for our talking five, but I think John's comments zero in on the following. Five words or fewer. What is your response to Marjorie Taylor Greene's divorce petition? Oh, uh, I feel bad for for both of them. (laughs) The country and and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. No, I meant her. Okay. Both sides of the country. Juliet? I decouple from her. John? Uh, I don't give a shit. (laughs) Perfect five. Okay. (laughs) I want... Can I take his? Yeah. Well, well, well I mean, John spoke for all of the end. Okay. Um, don't let the door slam. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Juliet, Al, and John. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Jen Rubin about the far-right coalition government in Israel under Benjamin Netanyahu and the political turmoil that it has led to in the last weeks. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it and you get a lot of exclusive content to boot. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Colena Tano. Thanks very much to Dan Wilson for explaining Rule 11. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.